0: I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hi there, as you know, I am profoundly grateful for this platform and the opportunity to highlight people and projects, organizations and institutions, artists, art world people, people who I find interesting and who I think you will too. I read about the Helen Frankenthaler Climate Initiative and reached out immediately to Sarah Sutton. I wanted her to talk about museums and the climate crisis and what our roles but also responsibilities are and how we can do better. I think you'll find this conversation really interesting whether you're involved with museums or not. I believe that museums are essential to the good society and part of that is doing the right thing when it comes to climate. We'll get there in just a second. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Clee, Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellycleecom backslash Heidi, that's K-E-L-L-Y, klee.com ecom backslash Heidi, and they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended, per each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co., which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best Co can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable, high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestandcoaspen.com, and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best Co.'s website. I was just looking at it today, and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Sarah Sutton is Principal of Sustainable Museums. For three decades, she has worked in the museum field with a specific focus on climate awareness in the cultural sector. Sutton works with the leadership of individual institutions as they prepare and launch mission-specific climate initiatives or plan more strategic engagement with initiatives around environmental sustainability and climate resilience. She and I discuss museums and the climate crisis, Helen Frankenthaler and her values, LEED certification and the early aught building boom, climate, COVID, economics and equity, just doing what we do. How to surface answers you don't know, how art documents climate change, opening the science-based discussion on climatization of museum collections, the push that funding allows, the risk of action, but also of non-action, the importance of individual action, carbon offsets, and how a single person can make major things happen at an institution. Let's start off by talking about how you have spent basically the last two decades two and a half decades with your advocacy for museums and how you think museums should show up in the world.
1: Well, I've been a museum professional for even longer than that. Okay. Uh, and grant writing had been an important part of that for a variety of reasons. But the work with sustainability, environment and climate with museums started because My friend and colleague, Elizabeth Wiley, asked me to write a grant application that her firm was working on with a college in Boston. And the application was for campus planning for sustainability. And I had to do a great deal of learning to understand the sustainability aspect, not so much the planning or the campus aspect. And when I was done with it, it was so clear to me that this kind of work was critical for the cultural sector because we're charitable institutions, we're educational institutions, and we care about our communities. And if we keep saying all those things are true, then we can't ignore the climate crisis and all of the related cascading impacts of it. And this work was critical for us to pursue. But Elizabeth and I started looking into it together and discovered that there was quite well, far too little work going on in our sector and wanted to start seeing how we could raise awareness and spread it in whichever way we could get people to take it up as quickly as possible. And that was the beginning of all of this work.
0: That's great. I guess we can come to where we are today and then we can sort of fill in backwards, You are now leading a project partnership with the Frankenthaler Foundation and, and RMI, right? The Rocky Mountain Institute, which is an institution that I am very familiar with and a huge mm-hmm. fan of, to make grants now specifically to visual arts museums. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I'd be thrilled to because where else do you find in the cultural se- sector, let alone the art sector? some funder that has said it's a priority for us to do this work and we are going to help you do it and that's what frankenthaler is doing so this came about this partnership of helen frankenthaler foundation rocky mountain institute and sustainable museums because the um, board members from frankenthaler had reached out to rocky mountain institute very passionate about the importance of climate work, in general, energy efficiency, reducing carbon emissions. Uh, and how do we help cultural institutions be more sustainable financially? And of, of course, being energy efficient and using less energy and it will save an institution money. It will also reduce carbon emissions, which reduces their climate impact. So both of those things, by one solving one problem, are helpful to institutions. And they reached out to Rocky Mountain Institute to think about how to do this work. And then through something called We Are Still In, I was connected to the Rocky Mountain Institute staff and became the third leg of the stool for the connection to the museum cultural sector for distributing those funds.
0: So what do people need to do to qualify? And what are you finding with museums? Like, what's the level of, of kind of commitment to this area, but but also knowledge? And I'll tell you, having run a museum in Aspen, and Aspen is an incredibly progressive place, particularly when it comes to climate, and has been really on the forefront of the efforts towards sustainability as a community, I was able to work with the city of Aspen to get a certified um, with the, the highest standards of the goal setting towards sustainability. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we got a sticker um, that was on our, <laughs> our door, right? You know, so that people would know that we had that. But it wasn't something that anyone in the institution, frankly, was focused on before I got there. Uh, I mean, maybe we were doing some recycling, but, you know, one of the first things I did was change out all our cleaning products and change the light bulbs and and do some things that I thought were pretty basic. I mean, I had come from California, So maybe I had, you know, more interest or efforts in in that direction. But what are you finding across the museum sector? How knowledgeable are people? How interested are they? Is this money intended to kind of encourage people to learn about it? Or is this supporting people who have already made efforts in that direction or or both?
1: Well, why don't I answer that by going back to... The real beginnings in the sector, like your first question of what I was seeing, and then how that brought us to this moment where the Frankenthaler Climate Initiative is so perfect. 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 So when Elizabeth and I were doing this research and writing in 2005 and 2006, we approached the American Alliance of Museums and said, we found that this is very important. We really wanna share this with the sector. We'd like to prepare an article for you. And at the time they said, we haven't seen a lot of demand from the field asking for that. We don't think the time is right now. Honest to goodness, six months later, they were ready for an article right then. (laughs) And we said, awesome. And we can't give it to you that quickly because this is such a complex topic and there isn't enough there there yet in the field for us to write this really quickly, but we will continue working on it, give it to you as soon as we can. That first article then triggered an invitation to a um, to the building museum conference, which was in Washington DC, in which we had did a plenary presentation And from that, there was an invitation to write a book that became the Green Museum, a primer on environmental practice. When we wrote that book, we had to bring most of our examples from outside the sector. And that was published in 2008. When we did a second edition in 2013, it was a much larger book, much uh, broader in scope, and all of the examples were from the sector. So what happened between 2006, seven, 8, and twenty thirteen? Well, the the building movement. You were talking about that sticker on your door. Is it a a lead certification?
0: No, it it wasn't. It was. Like- but so it's it's interesting because I got there in two thousand and five. Um, so we really were on the forefront, mm-hmm. uh, and we certainly can talk about lead because I have a lot of opinions about it, largely. From my former husband, who was a green builder, and also the work with Shigarabon. And you know, one of them is pro-lead and the other is anti-lead. So but.
1: <laughs> familiar territory uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Well, but lead was at that moment, if not driving, certainly focusing attention. Uh, uh, and sure. there was this significant building movement. If there was a green museum, it was because they had a new building or an expansion or a renovation that had lead certification, whether it was driven by a funder or an architect with exposure in that area. Yeah. Well, in 2008, we had an economic crash and our building boom, of course, stopped. So the focus on green work, at least from our point of view, was to shift to programming and operations. How do we save money in that economic crisis? Just like right now, how do we save money on operations by reducing energy consumption, waste purchases and um, disposal? How can we be more efficient, save money, better for the planet? And that built our skills in that other aspect of running museums in a more sustainable way. And then as we progress from moving forward into the climate movement, taking social action, not just quietly doing this green work behind the scenes, but doing it front and center with the, in the public eye and with the public. And that trajectory has brought us to a point where now I believe sustainable practice on climate issues is The best way to signal that you are an aware institution that makes good Uh use of its resources is respectful of the public, is looking towards the future, and engaged in ways in making a healthier, happier, safer community for all. So we get ourselves to 2021 or 2020 when this initiative is being designed. And the Frankenthaler Foundation has already done some work investing grants programs for artists who are affected by COVID-19, the combination of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as far as I'm concerned, of climate, COVID, economics, and equity, all converge. And climate work is an important way to address all of those. And the Frankenthaler Foundation says, we are standing up, this is important to us. We're going to help institutions do this work. But to the second part of your question, Are the institutions ready? And so the design of this grant is to meet them at whatever stage they are in, in their climate journey of focusing on energy. So there are three aspects, there are scoping grants, technical assistant grants and implementation grants. So if you already have a plan that for some reason you have been able to implement, let's say you built a new building and you have a solar ready roof, but you value engineered the solar panels out of the end product. Mm-hmm. The implementation grant could fund that. If you're at the other end of the spectrum and you're just trying to figure out what is the capacity to reduce energy consumption and then generate clean energy, a scoping grant will help you figure out the potential and think about the design of your project. And then the middle sweet spot is technical assistance grants where someone's got an idea, they have the general understanding of the capacity of this project, but they need to turn it into operational plans, whether it's an institutional strategic plan, but mostly it's the technical assistance that turns the idea into an actionable activity that you could fund. You could, well, you implement, find funding for, sell and find funding for, and then actually build and use. Okay. I
0: have so many questions. The first (laughs) question (laughs) Uh, Helen Frankenthaler was an incredible artist, incredible painter. Super interesting that the, the Frankenthaler Foundation is working in this way. Have they funded anything out and, and I've been a, a you know nominator for them and, and whatnot in, in their artist grants. Um, have mm-hmm. they worked in, have they worked in this part of the field before? Have they worked outside of artist grants? Have they worked in the environment? To my knowledge,
1: this is the beginning of that evolution. I mean, the foundation. So cool, right? Yes. Helen set it up so that it could evolve. Is that not awesome? So in the 80s, when she set this up, she set it up to adapt. And so that the social investment is an example of that adaptation. The environmental aspect is the newest iteration of that.
0: Can I just say, like, go women? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and
1: right? although Helen would not, it, it, she would accept go women, but not just because we're women. But, of but uh, to, and that's what personally interests me and excites me about Helen and this activity is that the quote is that, you know, she just, she just paints. And I just do this environmental work with cultural institutions. I just do it. It, It's not an option not to do it. It wasn't an option for Helen not to paint. And that uh, not being an artist, that's where I find a connection with her that really resonates with me.
0: There are a couple of things that come up for me from that. One One of the reasons why I was really interested in taking this job that I start tomorrow Mm -hmm. uh, with the Orange County Museum of Art, because 60 years ago, the museum was founded by 13 women. And that's incredibly progressive, you know, that 13 women would have come together 60 years ago and say, we want a museum in our community. Mm -hmm. And for Helen Frankenthaler in the 80s to say, you know, we can't predict the future. We don't know what the most urgent needs are going to be. You know, we know that artists are always on the forefront of of culture and thought and often predict what, what we need to be focused on, but that she would design her foundation to support whatever is most critical in the moment. Um, and again, yes, of course, it's not just because we're women. You know, things just are. But historically, I think that women have proven Uh, you know, a flexibility and nimbleness of thought uh, that I just am anxious to additionally celebrate or at least acknowledge. Yes,
1: I completely agree. That willingness to explore, uh, to take risks, to know that you don't know the answer, uh, Mm. but that you can figure out how to surface the answer that's really necessary in being at the edge of anything new, being in that space between no domains that is so fertile and um, untracked and uh, has few guideposts. It's not everyone is comfortable there. And you know, 20 years ago, I would have said that would not be my territory. But now it's the only place that I like to be. And clearly, she was comfortable there.
0: Well, that's one of the amazing things about art, I think. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot is that it's a safe space for unsafe ideas. And mm-hmm. a big part of, you know, contemporary art, especially, is acknowledging that it's okay to not get something, to not understand something, that that's actually sort of the goal sometimes is to put people in a place of not necessarily like, you know, chaotic confusion, but you know, just enough confusion that then you f- you figure something else out. You know, you you find mm-hmm. your footing um, so that you understand what the next step is, and and they can be incremental steps too. Well,
1: and I think that must be part of why I'm so fascinated at, or well, so focused on the value of arts and humanities in addressing climate change and creating space for climate action uh, when so much of the work we've done so far has been based on science and technology. And that's mapped out in the museum field response to environment and climate, that the science and science centers, science museums, natural history museums were the first to begin this transformation. It was well within their perceived mission from an educational point of view and a content point of view and it was considered only a science issue and of course it's not that but it's taken us a long time to realize that and that trajectory has been mapped out in the sector that history museums and art museums were slower to pick on this transformation pick up on this transformation and consider it within the realm of the work they do But their collections document climate change the way science collections do. Their historical collections of how people responded to challenging environments, to loss, to risk, to danger, and then overcame them, are all inspirational stories that we could use to help the non-scientists of the public see that they have a part in understanding and responding to climate change and that they have something to contribute that's so important in the resi- developing the resiliency of everyone in the world to respond to a changing climate.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about two summers ago, we had a horrible, horrible fire in the Roaring Fort Valley. And there was so much smoke. And we were coming up with ways to try and be of service as an institution that was one of the mandates that i was constantly putting forward to our team how can we be of service how can we be of service and with that the museum has an incredible air filtration system works of art have to be kept at a, a very specific very very small range of temperature and humidity so between 68 and 72 degrees fahrenheit and you know plus or minus a few percentage at, at 50% humidity. And to be able to have a building that can function like that, I mean, it's it's art and science, right? It's it's technology, it's everything that comes together. And we designed the building, I'm talking about the Aspen Art Museum building now, with two different climate zones. The the primary climate zone with that very, very precise specification for the works of art was in the core of the building in the in the six galleries and then we had a a different climate zone in the spaces which were more permeable so that we could open the doors and it was more of kind of like an indoor outdoor climate and then of course the third area which was outside of the museum you know there was zero climate control and we were thinking about how as I mean, unfortunately, the environmental factors, you know, get worse and get more extreme, that museums already have figured out a lot of this kind of air filtration. And we were suggesting to the community that we were, you know, safe space to come. Uh, and I wonder if you've seen other institutions kind of communicate that sort of transparency around the air In the spaces?
1: I do believe, especially in the COVID discussion, Mm -hmm. that there has been a lot of conversation around that. We like to think, and we are, safe places in many different ways, Mm -hmm. and uh, a controlled atmosphere is one of those safe spaces. You could have the exact same discussion about museums as cooling spaces during hot summers, increasingly with um, climate change. So I think the Broad Museum, their visitor reception area is a cooling space, or can be made a cooling space when there are certain designations, heat designations in the city. Those sorts of socially responsible ways to share our resources when the community needs something that's extraordinary, such as healthy air conditions, air conditioning, cool spaces, that sort of a thing. And I love what you pointed out that you have two different zones from an energy efficiency point of view, that makes a lot of sense. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm delighted with a continued conversation about how do we examine the ways in which we care for our collections to make them more responsive to the collections, more accessible to the public and more energy efficient. And there's, been some excellent research on what are some conditions for some collections that won't require the same standards that you were talking about for your particular art collections. There might be um, like furniture collections, decorative arts collections, items that have been collected from communities that don't require particular set specific Conditions uh, and can be exhibited in other spaces. And that's lots of opportunity for creating change and responsiveness as well on behalf of these institutions.
0: Super good point. And thank you for bringing that up. And that's something we can unpack a little bit. The Aspen Art Museum actually doesn't have a collection. And so the climate zone within the museum was specifically designated to the galleries, um, to the exhibition galleries. And so those standards were set in order to borrow works of art Mm -hmm. from collecting institutions and and from collectors. And the Orange County Museum of Art does have a collection, and the collection storage is off-site. So that is, I think, one of the other ways for museums to start to think about how to be most kind of prudent and judicious about how big those highly climatized areas actually need to be Mm -hmm. as a way of reducing environmental impact.
1: Well, there are two things that I don't know if you're, well, one, I'm sure you're not aware about because it's so new, but (laughs) we haven't told lots of people, but uh, do you know about a program called Art Switch? It's It's in its third, about to do its third public conference. And it's about sustainability in the art museum and the arts market world. And in that, there are discussions about a number of aspects of sustainability. Three that come up most often are traveling exhibits, crates for traveling exhibits, the Mm -hmm. carbon impact of crates, and uh, standards for temperature and humidity control as reflected in the loan agreements that you're talking about for at the Aspen Art Museum. And what we're hoping to do, Stephanie Shapiro and I from Sustainable Museums, is reopen the discussion about the current science on temperature and humidity control for caring for collections and the professional and market barriers and opportunities for Improving sustainability in collections and exhibits worldwide. Not so much that Stephanie Shapiro and I are going to solve that problem, but we'd like to have the sector have a discussion so that it can explore the best paths forward that are socially responsible, environmentally responsible, equitable for everyone, and affordable so more people can access the art.
0: I love that. That's so exciting. I think that one of the things that, I don't know, has been, I'm never a fan of when people say, well, it's always been done that way. So it has to be Mm -hmm. like, right. Um, That, that for me, is just like a big red flag. Uh, And I usually like to kind of poke at that and, and ask why. And there are so many things about museums that, haven't really evolved. And there's mm-hmm. so much opportunity to rethink uh, how museums function in the world. And this connection on the sustainability aspect, I think, is super, super ripe for that. And I think part of it is, yeah, having discussions around previous third rail topics, right? And mm-hmm. it's amazing how AMD responded this year on the deaccession conversation. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a conversation that's been going on forever. And and there's a, you know, a temporary structure in place where people, museums can consider deaccessioning for use of funds towards care of the collections. And we all understand the power of language, right. And mm-hmm. the nuances of word choice and there are, is endless debate that could go on about nomenclature. And, <laughs> and that can be a hindrance, right, to progress. But you know it, it it is important to to have not just conversations and and convenings, but to take action right from those conversations. And what's interesting about this grant cycle or grant pool that you have is is that it encourages action um, beyond just discussion.
1: And many museums and their leadership need that little push to take action because it's so it's perceived as risky right if you're an art museum and you're doing something operational techy and you don't feel comfortable with it or you don't you don't have any experience with it there's perceived risk that you might make a mistake or that the technology is adapting so quickly that whatever you choose, it'll be out of date. So they feel like that's risky. For those who are concerned that outsiders will view such action as mission creep, because we're about art, we're not about environment or tech, although that's much less the case that people see it as mission creep. But for someone worried about mission creep, that makes it too risky for someone worried about use of charitable funds. If I spend money on this, I won't have enough funding to do that. And so this is a clear signal from a funder and from a high profile funder that says, this is important, we will help you figure this out. Let's go ahead and do this. It's not happening, I don't see it happening anywhere else. And I think that's, well, I think that's too bad and awesome at the same time. And we really hope that this will encourage other funders or groups of funders to take similar steps.
0: If you could wave a magic wand over the art museum field from your perspective, what would you most like to see happen first?
1: I think this grant is it because we are, the situation is urgent. We have to cut our emissions now substantially. And this is the path to doing it. And I'll I'll tell you the story of why I've shifted so much towards emissions uh, and a little less away from the social aspect. So for my business and my family, I calculate my carbon footprint for the year. And then I purchased carbon offsets through Climate Neutral Now, which is the United Nations sanctioned program for purchasing offsets. And the second year that I was doing this, I was reducing my impact. And I thought, well, you know, if I reduce my impact and therefore buy fewer offsets, then I'm actually not supporting other carbon uh, emissions. It's sort of a reverse effect. I mean, supporting emissions reduction. So I started doubling my purchase in order to make up for what i was reducing in use and i was speaking to the man who organizes the climate neutral now program and telling him that i had chosen to purchase offsets that reduce fuel use uh, fossil fuel use by women in in developing countries in ways that allow them to spend more time on family, education, and earned income rather than gathering fuel. And he said, that's terrific. I'm delighted you found the program. And there are other things that have greater scaled impact on emissions reduction right away. And Sarah, we can't wait. We have to include that as well. And he said, and I understand how promoting it to museums with social responsibility has value. This other stuff has a value as well. So that's when I started splitting my carbon emissions purchases, offset purchases, that the first one to cover family and business is major energy investment, clean energy investments or emissions reductions investments. And then the bonus second investment is on something that's socially responsible that feeds my soul. And so when someone says, where do I start first? It's cut your energy reduction, get clean energy. And then we can expand from there. The best thing is that as we reduce emissions, we do make it better for everyone else the communities that are affected by the energy generation and um, by those of us who will suffer the impacts of climate anywhere in the world.
0: There was a lot of discussion through the pandemic about this carbon impact. And when the art world couldn't travel. I mean no one mm-hmm. could travel, right? So right. then there was an opportunity to to look at things like creating art fairs, how often people are on planes and to ask some serious questions about how business actually needs to be done, you know, post-pandemic and to not go back to the way things were just because that's how they were. And I looked into some of this carbon offset. And it was not really easy to figure out how to do it. And I asked some people that I knew that are in this part of the field, I mean, not the art field, but the climate offset field mm-hmm. <laughs> or or green mm-hmm. energy or, or whatnot. And there was a lot of conflicting information. So I'm super interested to hear about your experience and, and what you identified and then also the response that you got. And, yeah, is something better than nothing? Or, you know, what do you think people should do? I mean, people who feel motivated to do something like today.
1: I absolutely believe that something is better than nothing. Individual actions are important, but everyone taking individual action is more important and has more of an effect and a more immediate impact. and. I understand how you can feel as if you can't make a big enough difference on such a complex issue, such a huge issue, and one that gets bigger by the day. It feels futile. I can tell you it's absolutely not. And the reason I know that in my bones is through We Are Still In. And the story of We Are... And the people I've met and... Uh, the capacities I've come to understand through We Are Still In. And so the story of We Are Still In is that President Trump announced his intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement on the 1st of June, 2017. I remember exactly where I was the moment I heard the report of this. And I was shocked, rocked, sick to my stomach that I was living in a country that did not share my values. And there was that momentary panic of, I must go to Canada. Now I was living in Hawaii at the time <laughs> to move to Canada was a big deal. Um, and and I, it seemed to me that those of us who cared about this would, would still do this work whether or not federal leadership directed us to or supported us in it. And organized a group of museums in order con- To say, we would do this, this is important, we're going to keep at this. And to send a message to the cultural sector that this is important, stay the course, keep working on it. Well, I didn't know that in New York, Michael Bloomberg and Jay Inslee and Jerry Brown were talking about creating We Are Still In and working with leaders of major businesses, uh, and creating a statement, we are still still in a coalition of representatives from multiple sectors that's for signaling to the world, not necessarily the United States, but the whole world, that there are enough of us in the United States that support the Paris Agreement and its goals, that we will keep the faith, we will keep doing this work. Please don't you lose faith and follow the United States out of the agreement. This was a stunning collection of talent, resources, financial commitment, major businesses, mayors and governors all around the country. And they didn't have a cultural sector and they didn't have a public engagement sector, but they were willing to listen to the fact that maybe there should be more people in this big tent. And by early 2018, they had adopted my group, But as the cultural sector, so I started off with a hashtag museum for Paris, and that was about as far as my thinking had gone, and suddenly I realized I had more going on here than I was prepared to cope with, and that I needed this larger platform. And we are still in became that, and we became the cultural sector part of we are still in. And at the same time, faith-based institutions and healthcare institutions were signed on as well. And in the meantime, tribal nations and higher ed had joined. And learning from the others on the executive committee about what they struggle with in their communities, what they're learning, what resources they have, has been really important to me to understand that we can do this work, but that it requires all of us. And then to have America's Pledge, which is the data arm of all of this, give us evidence that the stuff that we're doing, the commitments we're making to a carbon-free future really do have an impact. And that this subnational group still sticking to their values and priorities all during the Trump presidency have been able to come up with a significant part of what our commitment should be to the Paris Agreement. And that with an engaged federal government, we get almost to our 50% goal by 2030. Pretty darn close. Now, with a super engaged federal government, we can even do better. And I'm so looking forward to doing that. But it I'm that confident because I see other people doing it. We talk about it and we share it. And if I could ask people to do one thing, it would be to talk about climate change and the steps that they're taking so that other people are emboldened to do it as well. And that's where we can create significant change to really have a good impact for everyone.
0: Are there specific institutions that you would want to call out for the work that they've done? Uh, Institutions that could become models for other museums? Definitely. We've
1: got a, a bunch of bright lights. The challenge with identifying the bright lights is that each situation is so specific to the communities they're in and the resources they have at the time. And that's why Mm -hmm. whenever you you ask someone about climate action and what to do, the answer really is it depends. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's because climate and environmental work is systems-based work. It's highly influenced by the components of the system, you know, the, the current climate you're in, the uh, resources in that climate, the actors in that climate, um, and how they all work together or don't. Um, so, the bright lights for me are a whole variety. And outside of the museum world, uh, outside of the art world, the Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh, the Science Museum of Minnesota, the Field Museum in Chicago are super bright lights for different kinds of work, whether it's research, public engagement, um, building operations, or all of the above. And then if I look at the art world, we've got a similar variety. So I love the Perez's building and the design, uh, a little bit of the chutzpah for (laughs) being able to do that in their particular location. but also the art engagement that they have in the exhibits that they have there. Uh, So I would say the Perez is one of the ones I think of. Glenstone Museum of Art for its operations and its environmental center. Crystal Bridges for uh, a super efficient building and encouraging and sharing what they've done on their research for how to make a more environmentally sustainable museum. Uh, Arts Mia, if we think about how change happens in a museum, it's because somebody says this really matters and they make it happen. And Charles Walbridge, who is a staff photographer uh, at Arts Mia, has really been an instigator for being part of the green team and making it important to the museum and raising awareness up to the leadership level. So in addition to Institutions, it's bright lights of people who are in them who really drive change.
0: Sarah, how can people apply for access to these Frankenthaler funds?
1: Thank you for asking. The initiative can be found at www.frankenthalerclimateinitiative.org. The program is designed specifically for arts museums, that are collecting institutions. So at least for this go-round that is the primary focus, that's the eligibility criteria. It's a two-step process where you submit a letter of inquiry and then uh, we will invite proposals from that pool of letters of inquiry. The inquiry letter is due on the 15th of March and later this month in February, we're going to be offering two webinars with Rocky Mountain Institute and with me talking about the application process and the examples of programs. So we can imagine that the folks who are submitting a letter of inquiry, not having had this opportunity before, not necessarily expecting this opportunity, might have a little concern about whether or not they are the... the best example of a project or exactly how to describe it. So those two webinars will be important and we'll capture them in a recording and leave them on the website. But we hope that you'd be able to join us for the live question and answer in the presentation. But in the letter of inquiry, you'll be asked to choose whether you're applying for a scoping grant, a technical assistance grant or an implementation grant. And you might not actually be sure which one you fit into. It's okay to check the box for more than one. And this process of looking at what you think you would like to do and how you think it fits with the operations and the uh, strategy for your museum will help us ask a good questions about design of the project and what your intentions are. And so we will be updating the frequently asked question site in order to address some of those. We, can't necessarily respond to everyone's particular questions and we can't review documents ahead of time, but we are making every attempt to make sure that we are sharing information to help you design and propose a fundable project. We wanna make as many people as successful as possible, realizing that this is a multi-year initiative and that the applications will evolve and that some people aren't ready now, but they'll be ready next year. Our our goal is to not just provide funding, but to advance the field by helping the field to come up with better and better projects.
0: I think that effort towards collectivity is so important. Yes, what we do individually is important, but what we do together is where the significant impact comes from. And that's the same for individual institutions. We need to, to do the right thing ourselves in our own institutions. But the more we can do it together, obviously, the more significant the impact is. And there are a lot of things that didn't used to exist that become cultural norms. And this awareness around climate and the responsibility towards climate for museums and cultural institutions needs to become the norm.
1: I completely agree. It it needs to become the norm and it will, which means the museum sector can prepare for when it's the norm by doing the work now or it can have to catch up when it is the norm. And a program <laughs> like the, a program yeah. like the climate initiative is helping us to do that. And the initiative is prepared to you know, share information on what it learns during this process. And that's critical because we are all learning. If anyone who feels as if they know it all is wrong about climate, about most things, right? But particularly about climate, because we are learning so much as we go, the science is developing, the social aspects are developing, we're just learning to understand it better. So all of these attempts to address it, they're sort of research and progress work, we're all figuring it out. And those of us who are able to share our experience, good and bad are the most helpful for the others coming along with us who can learn as well and take the next step. That's not a comfort zone for the cultural sector. We like to feel confident about what we're doing. We like to be very strategic and straight line planning. Climate work doesn't align itself with that. And I think maybe that's why it's been a little hard for us to keep up with some other sectors in doing this work.
0: It always feels good to do the right thing. And Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity to do the right thing. Thank you for making that possible. My pleasure. What did I not ask you about that you'd like to share?
1: I believe it would be helpful to listeners to know your perspective on funding this issue in the cultural sector. And we might find that we have a a conversation about that. Did you have funding, directed funding at um, Aspen Museum that helps you? No, we did not. Ah, No. mm
0: -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. And it's interesting because maybe it would be better if this wasn't the case, but it is the case that money directly impacts a lot of the decisions that institutions can make. And Mm -hmm. you can have really great ideas. And if people don't have the ability to fund them for whatever reason, whether there isn't the money in operations or there isn't a specific donor, whether it's a foundation or an individual or a corporation that sees why something needs to happen, then it's really difficult to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And as you referenced kind of earlier in our conversation, there are always a lot of competing priorities. Like everything's important, right? It's important mm-hmm. to serve the community, it's important to do outreach, it's important to protect the works that you're borrowing or in your collection. Conservation is important, and climate is really important too. And one of the ways to get people to focus on what you, and that's a collective you, thinks is most important is to make funding available. And you're right, it's not just a small nudge um, to someone who wants to do the right thing. It's actually like kind of a shove. (laughs) (laughs) And that's really important. I mean, I, I like the analogy in life about Standing by the river and knowing that, like, everything that you want is on the other side, and all you have to do is kind of get across. But people don't want to get wet, or they, you know, aren't sure what to do with their shoes or their pants, or what do they do with like their computer or their phone, you know, right? There are Mm -hmm. all these kind of practical things, like, well, how do I actually do that? And the fact that you referenced that all people have to do is just submit a letter of inquiry, they don't even necessarily know. They don't necessarily even have to know what it is that they want to do. And you talked about that as being sort of a sweet spot in the funding opportunity, you know, is that kind of broad-based middle, like, I'm interested, I want to do the right thing, I don't know how. And the fact that that's where significant impact can come from is, hey, we're going to actually help you figure this out because we know it's a priority and you know it's a priority and we want to make this happen together. Oftentimes, people are standing by the river and it's really good, like when they trip and fall in, or someone just comes up and shoves them, right? (laughs) (laughs) They might be mad at first, but then it's like, okay, now I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm in, you know, I'm all in. I might as well just get to the other side. Right. Well, then,
1: so I'd like to talk about how I see the experience happening in an institution. And I right. won't give you specific examples, but I can tell you from a lot of experience of visiting with institutions and their staff, that it's, there's always a trigger. It's sometimes a motivated board member or a funder. Sometimes it's the person who takes home the coffee grounds for their home garden or somebody who takes home the recycling because there isn't a recycling program. There's always some person who says, OK, this is it. This is the moment. I'm just going to do it. We are going to make this. I'm going to make this happen on whatever scale I is available to me. And that has a very powerful But delayed ripple effect. People around you see what you're doing. They might even resist what you're doing when they see it, but they notice it and it starts to work on them. And they examine their own choice about whether or not they did that themselves or why they might resist something. You raise their awareness and they start to consider it or the next time they see it, they are more able to consider this possibility in themselves. And they try and establish their relationship to what you're doing and why they are or not doing the same thing. That's the opening for behavior change. And that really ripples throughout an institution. And the best thing is that it accelerates. It accelerates in the individual and among the group. It catches on. And as long as there's some sort of culture opportunity that allows that to continue to happen, you will see that progress. Now, there are outside levers that can drive and facilitate that. That can be forceful levers, such as your code in your city saying, if you're over 50,000 square feet, you need to have this energy efficiency rating. Okay, that will force a museum in order to get in line. It could also be guidelines from the art museum directors, American Alliance of Museums that can drive behavior. And it can be the general understanding that this is what we do as a responsible institution. And so whenever I walk through a museum with a group of people and say, well, tell me about the green things you do, they immediately believe they're not doing enough and that what they're doing is wrong. We are sure that everybody else knows more than we do. But in a conversation about how they run their daily work lives, we discover all sorts of green things that they do. And then their confidence builds and they start offering things they hadn't thought of before. And pretty soon we realize there are a whole suite of programs they're doing that no one described as environmentally sustainable and climate focused, but that they are. And when they can package all of those, they suddenly feel like they have this more confidence and are doing a better job of fulfilling their desires for how the museum should behave. That walk and talk at the same time sort of thing, we're able to walk the talk, is important for museums to demonstrate. And once they feel they can do that, they're much more willing to step out and talk about the work that they do and the change they can bring about on
0: their own scale. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Sarah, and for using this as a a platform to let people know where the opportunities lie and not just where the challenges are
1: thank you and i thank you for creating such a platform and you know having such an impressive list of people and topics that you've been pursuing i've really enjoyed our conversation and it i believe it makes a big difference for you to have these conversations and share them
0: I do too. Thanks so much. Yep. Okay, bye. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.art. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes.